0: Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society.
1: Where we make history the Brooklyn way.
0: Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today.
1: And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts... Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society.
0: And Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. For four days in July 1863, during the height of the Civil War, racial violence reigned on New York City's streets. The New York City draft riots were the largest domestic uprising in American history after the Civil War itself, resulting in the death of hundreds of black New Yorkers.
1: Across the river, Brooklyn was spared much of the violence of the riots. But Brooklyn had its own complex and sometimes violent racial dynamics that shaped the city's reaction to the tragic and shocking events of July 13th through 16th. On this episode, we consider the New York draft riots and their impact on Brooklyn.
0: African Americans felt the brunt of these attacks, and they were they were brutal. They burned down churches, benevolent societies, private homes. Probably one of the most infamous attacks was one on the Colored Orphan Asylum on 44th and Fifth, which was burned down to the ground. Lynchings were taking place; people were strung up on land posts and um, folks were driven into the river. I mean this this was uh, horrific. We are examining a document called The New York Draft Rights of 1863 by GLV.
1: So I'm also struck by what's missing, what what she doesn't tell here. Like, if you take her word for something, um, the draft riots were a passive experience of fear and hiding out on the part of black people. When we know from our previous segment that that is absolutely not the case. But, you know, thinking even about today, I'm fascinated by the role of religion in, like legitimizing or making sort of more palatable to white people notions of protest. We have three different people who are actually starting to think about why they use the word riot or don't use the word riot. The reason that sometimes I
2: don't love the word riot is because I believe there were organized uh, protests within that
3: well, I use crises because it was a crisis. It could have reached a point where people might say, you know, riots or whatever, but I saw we kept it from reaching there.
4: I would again explain to another culture the energy level that people manifest a carnival. They just want to have a good time, but somebody else would have misinterpreted that as a riot.
0: Before we talk about the draft riots from Brooklyn's perspective, I think it's important for us to just talk about exactly what the New York City draft riots were.
1: Yeah, and the context um, in which they took place. And of course, the context is
0: the Civil War, War,
1: right? Which by the time the draft riots began was about halfway through. Um, And it was turning out to be much longer and bloodier than people expected.
0: And, and both sides were being worn down. You know, the resources, the the number of casualties on both sides meant that supplies were in demand and bodies were in demand.
1: Yeah. And I think this is a I think this is such an important thing because, you know, today we see the Civil War so inevitable to our history. It's this turning point really for historians. It, it marks this kind of like halfway point in American history, a real shift. Mm-hmm. And it its length and its the number of people who died was not inevitable and in fact both sides really thought this thing was going to wrap up really yeah. quickly yeah. and people flocked to enroll at the very beginning, and by the time we get to eighteen sixty-three, with these horrible, bloody battles like Shiloh, people are done. People are not yeah. enrolling anymore, yeah. right? That, yeah, the, that patriotism the, is gone. Yeah, the
0: war enthusiasm is is diminished significantly.
1: That's right. That's right. And so that's the context against which um, Lincoln starts to say, "How are we going to keep this war going if we do not have manpower?" But there's another context kind of taking place as well. I would say beyond just the needing of soldiers, yeah, yeah. and that's the very meaning of the war mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm.
0: So in in 1862, in September, Lincoln issued you know this offer to the South and said to the rebelling states, "Come back into the Union. It basically, we'll leave your slaves intact. But if you don't do that," by January 1st, all bets are off, right? So January 1st, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect. In its action, it's debated exactly what it did, like because it didn't, it didn't,
1: didn't actually free, free anyone, that many right? But yeah. it
0: did signal a change in the meaning of the war, right? The war went from being simply about preserving the Union to a, a war to, to end slavery. And certainly, the role of abolitionists, black and white, and the role of freed black people and uh, ex-slaves or even enslaved people who got wind of the Emancipation Proclamation. As far as they were concerned, this was a war about ending slavery. And as that idea kind of filtered out, um, I think this further antagonized or, or this, mm-hmm. this this caused further resistance to the war on the part of a lot of of newly arriving immigrants yeah. who are like yeah. this. What does this have to do with me? And why do I have to go
1: fight for this? I mean, I think this is so key because you know the uh, one of the reasons so many white people flocked to sign up for the war was because it wasn't framed by the federal government as being about slavery yeah. in the beginning. It was yeah. it was framed about being about the preservation of the union. Right. Now in the South, it was totally framed right. as being about <laughs> slavery. It was about right. uh, you know preserving and expanding slavery right. in the South. But in right. the North, it was about preserving the yeah. Union. And I think, Zahir, your point about the role of. Everyday Black people in pushing this um, agenda is so important. The Emancipation Proclamation didn't spring out of nowhere. Right, this was due to the fact that so many slaves, getting right. wind of the war, began to leave plantations en masse. Showed up at the you know like the the, the edges of a of an encampment saying, yeah. "Here I am, mm-hmm. um, give me a hand." And basically, a series of conscription acts are passed that eventually lead to the realization that. That Black manpower in the South can help win this war, right? Right. So it's so important, I think, to emphasize the agency of black Southern people in really pushing this agenda of slavery. But I think, as you say, I mean, this is not what maybe like your recently arrived um, Irish Democrat who is, you know, working for low wages in New York City really cares about or what he wants to hear and in fact it maybe is anathema to what he wants right to hear.
0: and i think it's compounded by the idea of what is going to happen to these newly freed people where are they going to work and what's that going to be mean for me in terms of my own economic prospects right so it wasn't just a kind of political or um, racially motivated resistance to this war and yeah. it's now an economic, economic resistance as well.
1: You sound like a copperhead. <laughs> like you're, you're like articulating the copperhead point yes. of view and I yes. think this is a really important term for people to understand for the context of the draft riots is that New York's economy for a very long time was tied to the South, and there was a lot of pushback against the war. Mm-hmm. Even when it was framed as preservation of the Union, there were these Democrats who were who were really pushing to end the war very early on, 1861, 1862, and they were called Copperheads, yeah. and they were masters of propaganda, and they knew exactly how to sort of rile up their working class class base. And so let's just combine these things in the beginning of 1863. The passage of the Emancipation Proclamation in March, the passage of the Enrollment Act, which is the first major federal draft for the Civil War, um, saying you get a, you, you're you required now to come put your name in the draft. And this mixture, basically, the, the Copperhead sees upon this and say, you are now going to die <laughs> on the front of a war that will never end. Because in in the name of the black people who will come to the north and take your jobs, while rich men will sit idly by, the rich Republicans will remain in New York because they're able to pay a, are you ready for this, $300 Mm. fee, which, by the way, is like more than a yearly salary for your average working man in New York.
0: So what actually happened? What were the riots? What actually happened?
1: Well, there was a kind of an interesting, unfortunate timing thing, Mm -hmm. which is that the first draft—so basically the Enrollment Act says this summer— all white men have to come put their names in in for this lottery. It is literally like a wheel, <laughs> like a kino, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's literally a wheel and they pull na- names out of it. Um, so as we said, wealthy people could basically buy their way out of it for a significant amount of money. And then also black people were not, their names were not submitted to it because black people weren't considered citizens right. at the time, right? So no black men, just white men's names right. going in here, Right. right? The first draft um, lottery takes place on the Saturday, which means that the names of the people who were chosen were printed in Sunday newspapers. Basically, the one day that working people had mm. off from work, giving them ample time to kind of get together, discuss it, get very angry about it and begin to organize.
4: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: It is very interesting to think, like, what d- did people set out for a riot this bloody and violent to take place. But essentially what happens is that a group of protesters, large um, men, women and children, leave Irish neighborhoods in lower Manhattan at dawn and begin marching north to the site of the draft office on 44th and 3rd, I think, Mm -hmm. which they promptly burn to the ground (laughs) and then begin to enact a series of acts of violence, first on soldiers and police, and then increasingly on the black population of the city.
0: So in addition to the federal office, African Americans felt the brunt of these attacks. And they were were brutal. They burned down churches, benevolent societies, private homes, Probably one of the most infamous attacks was one on the Colored Orphan Asylum on Forty Fourth and Fifth, which was burned down to the ground. Lynchings were taking place; people were strung up on land posts and um, folks were driven into the river. I mean, this this was uh, horrific. It was, it was. It was. It was. It seems like an act of ethnic cleansing. Yeah. You know. Uh, yeah. You know that that African Americans and and. You know, not only were black people attacked, but also anyone that was deemed an ally of black yeah, people. Absolutely. So abolitionists were attacked, people like Horace Greeley, um, black abolitionists were certainly under attack like Henry Highland Garnett. Um, and this went on. It reached such a. a a peak level of violence that the New York City authorities were overrun.
1: Absolutely overrun. So
0: how did this finally wind down?
1: Yeah, well, and I mean, it's important to think about the numbers here. There's about 12,000... 500 african-americans living in new york city at the time there's two hundred thousand wow. irish people yeah
4: um
1: it's a quarter of the city's population right and probably a few that might have been policemen as well mm, right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know soldiers you know most of the national guard is is off fighting a war right. so there just simply isn't the manpower to put this down Basically, the thing that quells it is the calling back of troops literally from the battlefield, literally from Gettysburg. Wow. Five regiments of New York troops are brought in two weeks after Gettysburg to basically put down this riot, which is done by the end of um, July 16th, um, 1863. But at the end of the day, um, you know, official numbers say 105 people died. It's probably closer to 500 people died. and. Almost half of the black population of New York City actually fled yeah. the city, yeah. many of whom ne- never came back.
0: And, and a good number of them went to Brooklyn. Exactly. So let's talk about what is going on across the river in Brooklyn while this is ha- this is blowing up in Manhattan.
1: Well, I think commonly Brooklyn is portrayed as a place of refuge um, during the draft riots, and it and it was. I mean, there's really something to be said about a body of water yeah. without a bridge <laughs> yet. Um, right. You know, keeping yeah. keeping violence yeah. from spreading rapidly to a, a different place. And there were a number of different places that served as this place of re- these places of refuge. And of course, the most important is Weeksville.
0: And we've talked about this in our Crown Heights episode about the settlement of Weeksville being very much linked to being able to own land so that you would have um, the power of the vote in New York state. And so Weeksville was well known, um, not just throughout Brooklyn, but New York City and certainly in the United States as a place of thriving black life. So it would make sense that people fleeing Manhattan, fleeing these attacks would go to Weeksville.
1: It was also kind of far away. It was several miles from the water. It was all black people living there. I mean, yeah. I think it's probably the safest reason. Yeah. That's the reason why it was so yeah. safe, considered yeah. so safe. Yeah. Is it was, it was, it was a community of black people. White people were really dangerous at this particular yeah. moment. Yeah. And they also had the institutional foundations to actually be able to support a significant refugee population. They had churches. They had benevolent societies. um, They were, as you said, landowners. So this was a place that could really take people in and and take care of them. But they weren't the only place that were taking people in. Where else did people go? So another um, growing black community was emerging in Williamsburg, um, which by this time had become its own city. And actually, we have some r- two really fam- interesting family stories of people who flee to Williamsburg. And one of the reasons why people were going there was not just because of the black community, but because a number of ferries actually stopped there. So one of the more famous families to make their way to Williamsburg was the Lyons family. Mm-hmm. So Mary and Ambrose Lyons were um, sort of husband and wife, middle-class black family, um, ran in abolitionist circles, had several daughters. And um, their third daughter, Maricha Lyons, actually later became one of the most celebrated educators in Brooklyn in the late 19th and early 20th century. But she also wrote an autobiography in which she describes in harrowing detail their experiences after their New York house was burned down and they were basically chased by a mob with some help from the police to the edge of the East River where a steamboat was waiting to take them across to, to Williamsburg. They didn't stay in Williamsburg, though. They actually basically stayed incognito along the entire coast of the Long Island Sound, crossed the Long Island Sound, and went up to New, New England where they ended up staying. They didn't ever want to go back to New York. So significant was their trauma. And it wasn't until she was an adult that Maricha came back to be an educator in Brooklyn.
0: Wow. Not not everyone was able to escape uh, or survive with their lives intact. Um, There is the story of the Robinson family of a man named Jeremiah Robinson, whose wife and her friend also fled to the East River. And because Robinson thought that men would primarily be the target, he dressed in his wife's clothing, hoping that that disguise would work. But it didn't work because his beard, I guess, exposed him um, and he was seized by the mob and killed. The way that he was killed was apparently so gruesome that the um, press reports said the atrocities they perpetuated on him were so revolting that they didn't even describe his death. His body was thrown into the East River, but his wife and her friend were able to make it across via the Grand Street Ferry, which also landed them in Williamsburg. Williamsburg wasn't the only place that people in Brooklyn went to. There were some other parts of Brooklyn that people found refuge.
1: Yeah, there were actually—so we talked about two black communities, but— um, you know, there were some white communities that were, you know, similarly horrified by what they saw across the river. Germans, um, which were very populous in Bushwick, um, they typically voted, um, Republican and were very supportive of the war and actually had their own tensions with Irish. And so, um, the German turnverein in Bushwick, which is kind of like a, like a community center, mm-hmm. took in a number of, um, of black, uh, New Yorkers. And then also there was a mill out, way out in Flat bush um, that got kind of converted into a refugee space for actually Black Brooklynites um, who were afraid that the violence would spread across the river. And I think this is like kind of an important thing to remember is that, you know, while Brooklyn did serve as this important place of refuge, it was not I was just going to say, should, should we be
0: patting ourselves on the exactly. back that Brooklyn was not about this? Well, a
1: lot of white 19th century people definitely patting themselves on the back. I mean, there was like this very like kind of when you read a lot of the writings of some of the oldest families, especially many of whom were anti-immigrant. They were, you know, abhorred the violence of the draft riots and they were so horrified and they showed how different, you know, Brooklyn, genteel Brooklyn was from you know, this kind of like frenzied immigrant force right. in New York City.
0: That's so weird because usually it's the other way around, right? It's like Manhattan elites versus the outer boroughs. Right,
1: right, right, right. But, you know, it's like... That's I think that's very 20th century. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? The 19th century is almost the opposite. Brooklyn was the city of homes and the city of churches. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, like half of the population in Brooklyn was foreign born as well. So that kind of reputation belies the fact that the city actually had a very deep and complex kind of history and relationship with racial violence.
0: And Brooklyn was not itself immune to racial violence just a year before the draft riots. We have this incident happening on the waterfront that just strikingly parallels the same kind of violence um, that we saw and the same causes. Um, it's
1: almost eerie, yeah. actually, and it's amazing how um, one instance of racial violence can be quelled and the other can go so so yeah. horribly wrong. Yeah. You know, yeah. and the, the 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 event that you're referring to, the tobacco riots of 1862, I think, are this perfect example of that. Now, of course. There's no Emancipation Proclamation yet. Mm -hmm. There's no Enrollment Act yet. So that kind of fuel on the fire is not quite there. But nonetheless, we see this event in which 400 white, Largely Irish Brooklynites descend upon a tobacco factory in August of 1862 simply because this fat tobacco factory hired black workers and in some cases paid skilled black workers the same amount of money that they did as their white counterparts.
0: By this time though these factories had been in existence and had employed black workers for about 8 years. Right. So that's a long time it's not new. For, yeah, yeah <laughs> these absolutely. folks know that there are black people working with them or white people and black people working together and you know as, as historians we're always trying to find like what is what are the triggers what are the things that make a a small thing explode, or what are the things that shift the direction of the or the trajectory?
1: This is where I think the parallels are so important between what happens here in 1862 and what happens across the river in 1863. Of course, this it's the Civil War, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's that's what is triggering people. There's a number of battles in 1862 with incredibly high death rates. You know, um, the Copperheads are working their propagandic magic. You know, newspapers like the Brooklyn Daily Eagle are certainly. Fomenting tensions among um, Black communities and Irish communities, and I mean, of course, there's also just day-to-day events that take place. So, for example, before this Monday morning that this take this this um, takes place, there's there a bar are, fight. There's a bar fight, yeah,
0: which it's, is uh, you know pretty com- totally normal. common yeah. occurrence <laughs> at the time. Bar fights are quite normal, but yeah. this this particular uh, fight in this context in this environment has a very different kind of impact
1: and the area where this takes place is like essentially the five points of brooklyn this is an area along the waterfront with nicknames like smoky hollow Mm -hmm. and kelsey's alley these are very poor areas Mm -hmm. um yeah so lots of bar bar fights sort of broken out there largely immigrant and so the existence of these factories also, amidst the ex- the existence of these uh, really poverty-stricken stricken living conditions with this growing sort of ideology fueling this hatred, um, I think is really the tinder that is sparked that day on August 4th at the tobacco factory.
0: On that day, early in the morning, the first signs of trouble emerged. When the foreman was informed that local residents were planning to attack black workers at the factory. So um, what he does is send his employees home, his black employees home, and went to a second factory to warn black workers there to leave.
1: But it was kind of too late, Um, and basically by the time it came time to leave the mob had descended upon the factory and what ensued for several hours was um, basically people breaking into the building attempting to burn it down throwing bricks and rocks and mortar at the building breaking windows and the largely black um, workers barricading themselves on the top floor and just kind of prayed for their lives and in this case the police had the wherewithal to be able to put the riot down but it really does make you think of like what different directions right. Um, right. the riot right. the following year right. could have gone in yeah these people are arrested, but actually a month later, basically no one comes forward to prosecute them, and all of the charges were dropped. So I think it's also another example of no seeing no justice for yeah. this act of violence against these people. And I mean, of course, nobody at the time knew what was going to happen eleven months later in New York. But when with when viewed with hindsight, is this ominous? Yeah, precursor. folks should have been
0: watching this. Right? Like this is like the pre exactly. the precursor to these even deadlier uh, attacks that happened a year later.
1: So I think it really belies the fact that Brooklyn was somehow this kind of virtuous refuge um, with no racial politics of its own. Obviously, along the waterfront and other places, these kind of racial tensions and even racial violence um, were a central part of the fabric here in Brooklyn. Love this podcast? Then head over to Apple Podcasts and search for Flatbush in Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us.
0: This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. In this segment of Into the Archives, we are examining a document called The New York Draft Rights of 1863 by GLV. It was written in the 1890s. And Julie, tell us who GLV
2: is.
1: GLV is one of my favorite Brooklynites. She's a fascinating woman named Gertrude Lefferts Vanderbilt. And I first kind of... Became obsessed with her when I was doing, um, oh, online website that we have, um, here at BHS about the Lefferts family papers. So I was very lucky. I got to do a deep dive into this one collection. And, There are lots of stories that you could tell through that collection, but the one that was really most fascinating to me was the fact that Gertrude Leffert's Vanderbilt was really a social historian in the 19th century and even a women's historian in the 19th century um, before we had any notions of what those things are. So she wrote a book called The Social History of Flatbush, which she described as sort of a history of the home and hearth. And it talked a lot about, you know, cooking practices and housing practices, but of course, labor practices and lots of other things. And she was actually really also self-promoting in a very savvy way and wrote lots of newspaper articles and herself kept lots of sort of personal and unpublished essays. And so what we're looking at today, this four-page chronicle of the New York draft riots, she probably wrote, in the as you said, in the 1890s. She was in her 70s, so it was towards the end of her life. And it's handwritten and it's not apparent that it was ever published in anything.
0: Mm-hmm. So this is her remembrance of this. She's remembering.
1: Yeah. And so she was born in 1824 and and so she was 39 years old when the draft riots took place, sort of at the height of her life. Yeah. And by that time, she was also a really a well-known philanthropist here in Brooklyn. She's like what you might see is like kind of like a liberal today. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. So she founded an organization called the Society for the Amelioration of the Colored Population of Flatbush. Mm-hmm. Flatbush, by the way, was a separate city at this time. And so she was kind of the grand dame mm-hmm. of Flatbush at the time. And,
0: and her family, she comes from a well, well-heeled family, oh, well-established. Yeah. I mean, for, I guess, casual historians of Brooklyn or even non-historians of Brooklyn, if you live in Brooklyn, you can hardly... Uh, Can't throw b- a stone, you. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Lefferts is like one of the main... Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about her family background.
1: Yeah. So her ancestor, the original Lefferts, Lefferts Pieters, came over in 1661 and by the time we get to the 19th century, when which is the height of Gertrude Lefferts, Vanderbilt's life, you know, there are hundreds of Leffertses, not just in Flatbush, but in other places in Brooklyn. They own massive amounts of land here in Brooklyn, in Queens. There's Leffertses out in New Jersey. Really, you can see a Lefferts diaspora mm, <laughs> across mm-hmm, the country mm-hmm. sort of spilling out from the 1660 arrival. They're one of the largest, wealthiest families in Brooklyn and it's worth pointing out that for her despite her advocacy of what she calls the colored population they were also among the biggest slave owning families in the 17th and 18th centuries really into the early 19th century
0: so this is these are old brooklynites
1: these are um, old brooklynites although and she's dutch a, extraction of dutch origin but she i would say is a She's like a she's like a what's the word? She's like a transitional generation. Mm -hmm. She really ushers in the modern age of the Leffertses. She is she publishes the you know her family at this point becomes involved in a lot of development in Brooklyn. By the end of the 19th century, they begin selling off their land to real estate companies, who are then putting up the houses that we now associate with Flatbush. So this is a real turning point in both the history of the of Brooklyn and the history of that family.
0: Okay. So let us dive into what uh, GLV Mm -hmm. remembered of the New York draft rights of 1863.
1: Yeah. What did you think about this document?
0: I love it. And I love it. (laughs) I thought it would be pieces that I would want to highlight, but there is just so much going on here that reflects. Well, let me just say this. Um, There were parts that I read that I had like a very visceral reaction to like i can't believe she's saying this and then i had to step into the historical moment in which she is writing and then i was like okay i understand why someone would think this is good to say that this is useful to say this is helpful to say about black people and it doesn't make it any more correct or right but it does Put it in context, and I think that that is something that we always want to kind of stress: is we're not excusing when we historicize. In fact, we're illuminating that some of the things that strike us today as deeply problematic are even more deeply as they are problematic. (laughs) Like you know, and we'll get into it so people know what I'm talking about. But there are ideas here that are unfortunately still trafficked today. Oh, yes. Right. Absolutely. So I can't like beat up on GLV when there are people walking around saying very similar kinds of things with with just as good intentions.
1: Yes. I, to- I completely agree with you. This is I mean, one thing that's really impressive about this document, it's four pages. It's handwritten. Um, she has lovely handwriting, as you'll see on our show notes for listeners. Uh, boy, does she pack in a lot of content. Ooh, it's
0: a lot going oh on here. Goodness. It's a lot going on And there's a lot to here. unpack.
1: It's yes. quite a tightly packed yes. suitcase, yes. if you will.
0: So, I guess one of the places that I could start well, you know, she talks about how the news came. To the household about this riot, and she says, "You know, the loaded farm wagon stood in the barnyard, ready for the morning market. And Tom, who was to drive the team in, was in the hayloft trying to get the sleep before midnight, which he would love before dawn. When he was around, and maybe aroused by a neighbor who warned him against going into town, telling him that there were there was a fearful riot in the street, that hardly a Negro." who had been caught by the mob, had escaped with his life. And so then she says, this story gets to them. And, you know, the morning papers corroborated the statement. The vindictive and malignant spirit of the mob wreaked its fury upon the most helpless class in the community. The burning of the asylum for the colored orphans was a despicable act. The poor and unoffending race of Negroes were selected as the most desirable victims for its vengeance. So I, you know, I just, that... First of all, she's so much just yeah. she's I know, I and, and I know that you said she wrote for very different. Like this is this is really really good journalistic writing. Mm-hmm. Like she just dives right in, tells us what happened. We know her point of view she, immediately. Yeah, she introduces us to the story. Um, there it's are also filled so many. Action.
1: There are also so many assumptions in yes. it. So immediately, you know, she like before she told us that Tom was quote an old colored coachman. We knew he was black.
0: Yes, you yes. know. I mean, it was yes. his
1: first name. Yes. He was a servant. I mean, and it went, and he, and it, he was afraid, yes. right? Yes. Um. So you're already seeing she's displaying both this kind of deep sympathy for a group of people that she completely lumps together yeah. the entire colored race, right? right? right. But also. They're describing a passivity there. Yes. Le- a leeching of agency right. um, that, I mean, no doubt Tom was scared. Right. Do you right. know what I mean? Right. But that's like a common through line through this whole thing is that um, this is a group of people who need protection from yeah. white people. And,
0: you know, it, so it's interesting, like the you mentioned the use of the first name and, and, and I think that we know historically that has meant to highlight a hierarchy and hierarchical relationship. And it also, and this is also part of how white supremacy functions, uh, even when it's in a liberal manifestation, is an assumption of intimacy. Like, I know you that I can call you Tom, right? Like, there's just like, I know your community. I know your people. I can call you all by your first name because I'm familiar. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's that trafficking of familiarity to then... Talk as you say, very um, universally about th- what's happening to to black people during these riots, and and the first is the painting of the I, I would say perfect victim, right? Help, and there are key words here. There's like helpless. There's um, the, the the acts are despicable. Mm-hmm. The poor and unoffending race. They were victims, you know. And I I think that this is. An ongoing conversation mm-hmm. throughout American history, certainly, about what has to be done to the portrayal of black victims of racism for in order for people to sympathize with them.
1: Yeah. And I mean, she, exactly, because her audience is also very clear in that she doesn't state it, which is white people. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and yeah. she's clearly trying to put forth a very specific and persuasive argument about the nature of black people. Yes. Right. And and. Actually passing herself off as an expert in in black people in the 19th century. I mean, the sentence that always strikes me, and this is, I'm sure, one of the ones that you cringed at Mm -hmm. when you mentioned this earlier, is that she goes on. This is just a whole paragraph in Mm -hmm. and of itself. The African race, as we see them with us, are neither cruel nor crafty. They are not a treacherous people on the contrary they are guileless and simple-minded gentle and kindly in their feelings and grateful for sympathy offered them now of course we're like bah. like yeah. but th- to her This was full compliments. Right. I mean, I think this is really actually an important thing to understand about the time is that you could set up a million charities. But, you know, she, like most white Americans, fully internalized a notion of racial superiority, even in her complimentary statements about black people.
0: Yeah. And, you know, this is she is part of a tradition. Um, So we don't want to say GLV started this, (laughs) Um, but she is part of a tradition of discourse about black people that she is continuing. And again, the visceral reaction is like, this is this lady is crazy. This is racist. But then when you go into that moment, I think this is where contextualization is important. What kinds of ideas is she drawing from? What kind of ideas is she speaking into? In the late 19th century, Evelyn Brooks-Higginbotham has talked about the politics of respectability. Not the same in this way, but the idea of, again, trying to demonstrate what what are the things that black people had to do to demonstrate that they were entitled to equal rights. So they had to show themselves to be just the same as—and usually— Conforming to middle class ideas about respectability, and um, which is
1: very tied up in behavior. It's right? very much
0: tied up in behavior, and so real equality would mean that Black people have the right to be angry, <laughs> have the right to be, to self protection, self determination, and, and and have the yeah. right to be cruel, yeah. but not that that you would not judge an entire people by the acts of an yeah. individual. But we we unfortunately. Our country's historical trajectory did not take us that way. It took us in a way where, you know, people's individual actions were lumped into a collective. You know, some sociologists call linked fate so that you were unable to experience life or be seen as an individual. Like individuality was not a privilege granted to black people. And so in that context, she is trying to portray the most sympathetic Least threatening right. image of black people. Now, when you contrast that with a mob, a riot that's exactly. happening in Manhattan yep. that's kind of spilling over a little bit into Brooklyn, it's even more powerful. This discourse is happening in this context.
1: Well, I think in addition to the politics of racial respectability at the time, another incredibly important sort of factor is that in the 1890s, this is the height of sort of the nuanced racial biological classification. Right. And so this is times when you have encyclopedias of races coming out, that people are doing all kinds of like, you know, pseudo biological and cranial studies to determine the physical difference between races and i think there's a very clear comparison that that gertrude Leffert's vanderbilt is making here between irish and black people yes. right yes. like they're both Inferior. There's a presumption right. that they are both right. inferior right. races. But why are we, you know, okay with the Irish when they're the ones right. who are this crazy mob when look at this nice group of right. quiet right. and submissive people right. that we could actually, you know, be supporting right. in charities like mine or others? Yeah, there's,
0: it's, it's, they're both savages. Uh, one is noble and docile and the other is rioting out That's in Manhattan, right? That's right. right? That's right. Um, it's interesting that you bring up the late 19th century because... She does invoke the ideas of civilizationism, but before we get there, there's just such a interesting twist that happens here because she talks about how one evening at the close of an anxious day before the mob violence had begun to abate, we determined to visit a temporary asylum. So they they had granted this or this space. For people who were seeking refuge. Right. As we, we mentioned talked this about. in the earlier segment. Yes. It
1: was a basically a windmill in Flatbush, the Vanderveer Yes,
0: yes. And so, so they go into this retreat and then she says, you know, and how do we find them spending the closing hours of the day? They were holding prayer meetings. <gasps> I, <laughs> this is so and then she waxes about. Black religious for activity two th- for
1: two thirds of the episode yes. uh, of the of the essay. Yes, yeah,
0: yes. And she's clear. She's like, this scene was certainly in contrast to that of the surging mob in yonder city. Uh, she talks about. She says, when this people enter with heart and voice into the worship of singing, they become thoroughly aroused and excited. They are swayed hither and thither under its control. I mean, this is...
1: It had a wild, barbaric ring of exultation through it. Yes. They were deeply stirred and they had no su- uh, sufficient words to give vent to their feelings. Yes. They had no vocabulary by which to express their thoughts. The music to them was speech. I mean, it's... Yeah, I
0: mean, she says the music was not suggestive of restraint or civilization. So this is... There is no intentionality. There is no intellect. There is no. It's not Brahms. Per- no, this is <laughs> this is visceral. It is emotive. It is. Um, it is
1: pre-speech, It right? is
0: pre-speech, yeah.
1: So I'm also struck by what's missing, what, what she doesn't tell here. Like, if you take her word for something, um, the draft riots were a passive experience of fear and hiding out on the part of black people. When we know from our previous segment that that is absolutely right. not the case. But, you know, thinking even about today, I'm fascinated by the role of religion in... Like legitimizing or making sort of more palatable to white people notions of protest, yes, right? Yes. So this is not an active protest. This is not like y- you're coming over here right. with a with a, with a p- right. with guns. I got my gun, right. you know. Right. This is a in the face of violence. Let's pray.
0: Yeah. The um, expectation of almost like forgiveness. It's that that theme again it, that we've seen throughout American history. It's
1: almost martyrdom, yes. right? It's yes. I will just sit here. Oh, it's and Totally, yeah, totally, and like you can see that in the in notions of. Well, in notions of, again, racial violence and protests today, I couldn't help but think of like the Charleston shooting yes. and the way that that was portrayed versus, say, you know, your sports teams bending a yeah. knee, yeah. you know, yeah. um, that the idea that that is something that's so insidious, but that the religious connotations or even just the religious experience of something like the Charleston shooting um, makes the this group a wholly sort of sympathetic Group.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, again, as I said, we said at the beginning, you know, we wanted to get into the historical moment so we could understand what she was doing and her motives. And I think she had in her mind the best of motives and the best of intentions. But what she does is contribute to the narrowing of the um, imagination of, in terms of the possibilities of the ways that black people can be the ways that black people can respond to racial violence is very much narrowed in this uh, telling.
1: In the last episode, we interrogated the heck out of the word factory, and we've also talked about the word riot in the context of, like, the Crown Heights riots right. of 1991, right? right? right. Or the like, well, Crown Heights violence or yeah. uprising or whatever you want to call it. But it is worth thinking about what is a riot and how does that word sort of play out over time? And, let- and, and why
0: we might be uncomfortable yeah. using it, yes. right? Because, I mean— um, GLV in our last segment yeah. says riots. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were called draft riots in the 19th century. And, it, and I don't think anyone at that point questioned what they were. Yeah. But in the 20th century, various kinds of unrest I think, bring us to a point where as people look back, they think differently about this word.
1: And interestingly, I think when we think about a lot of quote unquote riots in history, we're talking about often racial and ethnic tensions or labor tensions, you know. Um, And so it gets at these issues of these intertwined issues of race and class that we so often come back to and certainly have in this episode. So luckily, in this segment of Voices of Brooklyn, we have three different people who are doing what we're doing right now, who are actually starting to think about why they use the word riot or don't use the word riot. And what are the sort of the cultural consequences of that of that term?
0: the first person that we're going to listen to is Amy Ellen Bogan. And Amy Ellen Bogan was born in the Bronx. She grew up in White Plains in a Jewish family of Eastern European descent. Since 2002, she has been the director of the Crown Heights Community Mediation Center, developing and implementing programs as well as overseeing its day-to-day operations. She directed the first New York State Cure Violence replication site, Save Our Streets, Crown Heights, an anti-gun violence program that uses a... Public health approach. Her interview was part of our Voices of Crown Heights collection, and I will say that all three of these interviews actually are from Crown Heights-related collections. Two are from Voices of Crown Heights. One is from our West Indian Carnival and I think uh, uh, collection. And I think it's important to point out, of course, all of these interviews are done either in the immediate wake or reflecting in light of the 1991 unrest. As you, as some people may call it, the riots in Crown Heights, and so the the word riot is one that is looming and kind of hovering over all of our narrators who use it very differently. So first, we'll listen to Amy Ellen Bogan.
2: The reason that sometimes I don't love the word riot is because I believe there were organized uh, protests within that right people came and marched and then there were people who looted and you know threw rocks and did those things and um to me a riot to call all of what happened over those three days a riot um excludes the uh the the people who were like coming because they were saying, trying to make the statement, um, it is time for black people to get more services to, to, to this community. Right. So, um, there were many people involved who were not throwing, you know, sort of moving from a space of, of, of emotionality and, and with violence. And that's why, um, That's why I choose that word. Um, But sometimes I say riot (laughs) because that's pretty common and I'm not perfectly careful with that.
1: So the first thing I think that's worth pointing out is that there is not a... 1991, 1863 direct comparison Correct. to be made here. Correct. These are completely different situations. Right. There, we're not, you know, going back and saying, well, is there, you know, is there something we should read into the decisions of the Irish people who were lynching people around right. the city? Right. These are, to- these are apples and oranges. Right. To
0: yeah. Be fair. I mean, so this is always the challenge with us doing a uh, 19th century, right. or early 20th century topic. Uh, we don't have the oral histories from that. Period, and so usually in this segment, what we try to do is something a little bit more conceptual, uh, maybe something that raises important questions that we look back on, or in this case, looking at how the word or the the way that we talk about uh, a word has changed in the you know over the passage of time. Absolutely, and so I think this. This particular approach that we're doing for this Voices of Brooklyn is the latter. We're not we're not listening to these oral histories to raise questions about 1863. We're listening to these oral histories to understand how a word that we use to talk about 1863 has a different meaning. Exactly. Now, right. Exactly. And so in the case of this first segment that we just listened to from Amy Bogan, I think one of the things that is important for her in making a distinction between a riot and what she says is violence or some other term is that she believes that using the term riot erases a kind of political intentionality that was present in a protest in in 91.
1: It gets back to this theme of portrayal sort of public portrayal of events um, it, and obviously the press was so important by the, t- by the time we get to 1991. In the ways that they characterized this particular event, and the like, the foundational, subtler, structural critiques that sort of fueled a lot of the protest movements around this, and of course, also preceded. Yeah the uh, the, yeah. the the violence of 1991 yeah. by decades yes, right Yes, those are much more difficult things yeah. i think to capture and then feed to the public than of course the the nature of the the violence and the particular events of those sort of few days
0: yeah and i think it's it's really um i don't want to say cool but as as historians i think one of the things we always try to be cognizant of is that terms aren't transhistorical and so in the early 20th century, when you talked about riot, you were still talking about in, in a race riot was still an uh, anti-black riot by white people. Right. The Tulsa, the Red Summer, uh, Chicago, Detroit. I mean, riots still conjured up a kind of ethnic purging, uh, you know, Rosewood, those those kinds of things. By the mid 20th century, riots come to be seen something very different, right? The riots are happening in response to police brutality. You have the Harlem riots, you have the Detroit riots, you have unrest after Martin King's assassination, where the riots represent a kind of anger and frustration and that also exists,
1: an urban degradation yeah, and an yeah, urban unrest yeah. in the eyes of a like a mainstream white yes, media, yes, right? Yes.
0: And so, I mean, it's interesting to imagine what a GLV would have said differently because the kind of passive, sympathetic victims are much more complex and complicated figures by the mid 20th century and so the word riot similarly has undergone so many changes which is why I think by the time we get to this interview that I, that Amy Ellen Bogan does in this oral history that there's a lot of consideration uh, in fact she says um, even though she says, you know, I sometimes say riot because that's pretty common and I'm not perfectly careful with that. Like, there's this understanding that you have to be careful and precise with, with the term riot.
1: So who's our next Crown Heights resident that is going to interrogate this word for us? Um,
0: The next resident is Richard Green. Richard Green is a longtime activist. Beginning in 1969, he was a permanent fixture in the Crown Heights neighborhood of Brooklyn. In 1978, he founded the Crown Heights Youth Collective and served as the chief executive officer well up till the time of his interview and he still is in 2018 he co-founded the street outreach program he worked with mayors he's worked with the government and he was credited as one of the key figures emerging in 91 after um, the unrest in Crown Heights to help quell the violence and help kind of bring about reconciliation. So in this clip, he too addresses the term that he uses and why he doesn't want to use the word riot in talking about Crown Heights in 91.
3: Well, I use crises because it was a crisis. It could have reached a point where people might say, you know, riots or whatever. But I saw we kept it from reaching there. We kept it from that very first night I was out there. I got the call right here. And the very first night we were out there and we held on to this neighborhood. When we looked at what happened in South Central L.A. six months later, a year later, after the Rodney King verdict, even before that, what happened in Washington Heights, they were calling me to Washington Heights that day. i never forget to go up to Washington Heights after that incident, Mayor Dinkins. To what we're going to do to keep Washington Heights from going off the deep end, we were able to do that. Um, my good friend at Alianza Dominicano, um, uh, Moses Perez, myself, we, we got a school like we did here in Crown Heights. Crown Heights crisis was a, was a sample. We were the example. We did the school over here, my old middle school, I mean my old uh, elementary school, PS 167, on Schenectady and Eastern Parkway. We met, used that as a meeting point, and I got my team. See, Mayor Dinkins had put together something called Safe Street, Safe City. So we had this, that's where we got the van came out of the Safe Street, Safe City. We had a, um, he said, I'm gonna hire 5,000 new cops. I want to empower 5,000 new youth. So we had one of the programs, there were like seven programs around the city in different boroughs. So we had those street, those leaders in, in the, uh, the leadership group. So as soon as this happened in Crown Heights, my leadership team was out on the street. Kim uh, Hubbard and Sean Joe and others, we were out there on the street from day one. When there was, could be a scenario where it could have been a major event happening, we were able to quell it. One evening some young boys were being chased in an alley over there, and if they had been caught, it could have been a major piece. We were able to get in between that. Uh, we were able to talk to the leadership in the Jewish community. I was able, at this point in time, I had a relationship going with, you know, the, the big rabbis who, were the, who, who commanded authority. So I could speak to them and say, listen, uh, we want to make sure this community lasts forever if necessary, whatever it takes. Let's help me, and I'm going to help you make sure it does. Crown Heights is our home. I live in the same zip code you live in. So we were able to do that, and that's what we kept doing. We didn't make it get to the point where we saw what happened in South Central. How many bodies, how many people were killed, how many buildings were burnt. We were not going to let that happen. That was a riot.
1: All right, so for green, we're using a totally different sort of set of analyses about this word, and it sounds like for, for green actually what this is about is imagining what how bad it could have gotten yeah. it's almost like the tobacco riot yeah, right yeah, if you will yeah. like um it's like this we we had created such foundational institutional structures across communities i was talking with rabbis we were coming together we were figuring out strategies that we we didn't let it get to the point where it was a riot right right,
0: right. and i think Hovering over this is the context of when he's talking about South Central, he's talking about the, the, the unrest or the uprising or the riots, depending on who you ask, that happened in 1992 as after the police officers who beat Rodney King were found not guilty. Um, he also mentions Washington Heights where um, there was a police shooting of a, a young man also in 1992. So again, highlighting how the context in which one is speaking informs how they think about this term. And for Green, you're right. It's the issue of scale, of how much damage, how many lives. And in in his understanding, what happened in Crown Heights never reached to that, that boiling but point. But there's
1: also a through line here, I think, with these two interviews, and that is um, in foundations of activism and in institutions, yes. right? Yes. So that is what seems to preclude the word here, is that their emphasis is on what we have built, what what has been here before the riots, what we built after, that to focus on the particular events is the wrong view, right? Right, right. I don't know what that says necessarily about LA. Does that assume that there are no, you yeah. know, a- activists, institutions or foundations there, you know? So it's like that, that is my, I feel like my one beef with this clip is yes. that it's like, oh, no, 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 we're not. We're not riots like the way that, you know, L.A. riots. were. Well, I think you're
0: right. And I think both of these interviews kind of highlight because of how riot by this point in time in our history has become a racialized idea in terms of who riots and who doesn't and who is a victim of riot, who isn't, that neither of them want to claim that word. Right. Right. No one wants to say it was a riot. And that brings us to our, our last narrator, who is Cheryl Byron. And this is from the West Indian Carnival Documentation Project. Uh, she was born on the island of Trinidad in 1974. She immigrated to New York. At the time um, of this interview, she was completing a dissertation at NYU with the working title Brooklyn Carnival Theater and Art. So she, in this uh, clip, is talking about the energy that is part of carnival
4: I would again explain to another culture the energy level that people manifest at carnival I could I would say that our energy is often misinterpreted and where we are bent on having a good time and and having a certain level of enjoyment people could misinterpret that energy and see it as aggression. I'm going to tell you a little story to give an example. Mm. For example, a couple years ago I went to a boat ride. Again this boat ride was around Labor Day time because there are several boat rides. On this boat ride you had people like Sparrow, Charlie's Roots, Crazy, so you could imagine the top calypsoans were there bands, music, a steam band, so everybody wanted to get on this boat. At a particular point the boat was full and getting ready to pull off, but I think the crowd at the gate must have leaned on the gate so heavily that the gate fell down and people started running towards the boat. I saw some of the officers, the people who worked on the ship, they became so alarmed and they were trying to get the boat away, you know, get it moving, but I saw how easily that energy could be misinterpreted because people were running towards the boat holding their cases of beer, a case of beer on their head. (laughs) And they come in and running, but you can imagine the force and the energy that they're running towards the boat with. But they just want to have a good time, but somebody else would have misinterpreted that as a riot.
1: Okay this is a this is a fa- actually yes. I think this gets to the heart of kind of of what we're saying which is that the word riot in the in the period that we live in now this kind of tw- late 20th early 21st century post-industrial period has just become inherently racialized yes. in such a way that literal energy <laughs> is being characterized as p- potentially riotous yes. and it also I think shows the role of in- of another kind of institution of police force or in other cases the military as um, being the definers of the riot, right? Yeah,
0: and and again, a community or city that starts overturning cars and setting them on fire when their sports team wins a championship is not considered a riot in the way that a group of black people, let's just be very clear, who may be a little bit too enthusiastic about a performance about to happen— is considered a riot. And I think implicit in this, she's very, she's very clear. I like when she says, you know, the, the energy is misinterpreted. She's being very kind here. You know, the, no, the energy is racialized. And, and this has made using the term riot very deeply problematic. And so I think as we kind of think about this whole episode, we should Keep in mind that this word riot is not something that is has had universal meaning at at every point in time, though historically it was very appropriate to describe the 1863, we would not call it unrest, we would not call it an uprising, we would not call it a crisis. It was, in fact, a riot. But that does not mean that the usage of the term in 1863 can be just transplanted into 2018.
1: And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories.
0: Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephsehloss.com.
1: Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia.